moving slightly down the road to London. Who here has been to the Science Museum on Exhibition Road? Come on. Okay. Of those, who would classify it as an educational institution? Okay, a few people. Well, um, I'm going to give you a quick history of um, the Science Museum, its roots, its supposed function, and audience. Um, and through that, I'm questioning its, um, not its presentation as an educational institution, but its actual reality of whether or not it is an effective educational institution in both historical forms um, and at the end in the form that it's hopefully going to take in the future, according to their quite dramatic plans. Of course, the canonical tale of the story of the Science Museum begins the Great Exhibition in 1851. Um, this, the goal of the Great Exhibition, as um, most people, um, well, most people are told, was to provide education to the masses um, and to bring prosperity to the nation. Um, uh, it was directed by Henry Cole and was quite successful. It was. Um, the first great international exhibition, and was one of the few that actually made a profit. Um, this profit was quite quickly um, plowed in um, to other things, including the South Kensington Museum. Um, this is an institution today no one hears about, because today it goes by the name of the V&A and by the name of the Science Museum. Um, it was opened on the 24th of June, 1857, and had a total of eight collections. Um, the five art collections came from the Museum of Ornamental Art, which had been opened um, at, with the School of Design in 1836, um, and a whole range of collections from the uh, Great Exhibition that had been purchased, given, or loaned, including um, the three science <laughs> exhibitions. Um, None of them look quite scientific, do they? Um, you wouldn't think of animal products or construction and building materials today as scientific, but um, in uh, 1857 um, and the 1850s, this was the important thing, the important technical um, skills that someone could um, learn by going to the museum. You could learn how, for instance, St. Paul's Cathedral was built in the... Um, Museum of Construction and Building Materials. So this is, in some ways, cutting-edge stuff. But the South Kensington Museum, um, just to complicate our story a little bit more, is not the only institution founded then. In 1852, um, the Patent Office Museum was founded. Um, it's founded in the Patent Law Act of 1852 as a repository for models. Um, those two things don't really look like models. And that's because the first curator, um, Bennett Woodcroft, who was superintendent of the patent office, made this his personal collection, essentially. He rescued any bit of old, rusting, industrial salvage that he thought may be historically important um, and set them up next to the South Kensington Museum in his um, patent office museum. Um, this is completely different in purpose and focus than the South Kensington Museum. He was simply there to inspire future engineers and future scientists. He has no educational goal. Um, this is important to think about because the Q 
key pieces that today most everyone associates with the Science Museum, things like um, the rocket, things like the giant steam engines in the main hall, all were salvaged, or the major vast majority of them were salvaged um, by Bennett Woodcroft for his patent um, office museum. Um, they originally never had any educational um, purpose behind them. But in the South Kensington Museum, um, a educational idea formed. It's quite crude by our um, sophisticated educational philosophy standards, such as applied um, to the new Ashmolean, but it was aimed at three audiences um, with um, the purpose to, to essentially um, to teach the working class how to make beautiful objects, the middle class how to buy beautiful objects, and the upper class how to own a factory making beautiful objects for the middle class to buy. Um, and this is the way that um, Henry Cole and others involved with the museum see um, their educational function as simply educating um, consumers um, virtually. But this runs into two problems. First, you have um, the immediate problem that most museums that try to display anything cutting edge runs into, how much contemporary material versus how much historical material. And then you have the problem of exhibition style. Do you, how do you arrange your material? And these two problems exist today in both the V&A and the Science Museum. The V&A luckily was able to um, rearrange themselves according to um, two series of galleries, which they um, have had since the Second World War. But the Science Museum has never figured out a successful way around their balance of contemporary and, and historical. And for them, what is actually a balance between the science the knowledge and the use of the science, the technology. Um, but as I say quite clearly, this goal was never realized of any um, ideal in there. Um, a little bit more about the science collections as they um, came and went. I want to focus on three of them. Um, they're actually the um, last three at the bottom of the list. The Buckland Fish Collection, added in 1864, is probably the oddest museum collection that I have ever run across because... Um, it was, um, Buckland was authorized to go write a report on the economic production of British fisheries and came back with um, trout, salmon, um, three or four other fish species, live um, fishes, um, models, um, full-size replicas or full-size boats, everything. And he gave it to the museum and for the next basically 50 years, the museum was a source of fish fry. <laughs> if you wanted to stock your um, pond full of trout or your river full of salmon, you could go to the Science Museum and buy 10,000 salmon fry. <laughs> um, and this was an active part of the, of the museum's role for virtually 50 years. But really and truly, the, the Science Museum as we think of it started um, to coalesce in 1876 with the special loan collection, which is even today where a lot of the science, more scientific, historical scientific apparatus that we see at the museum came from. Um, this was an, an international exhibition and it brought together pieces from around the world, some of which mysteriously stayed around, um, some of which were copied, and um, 
and many of which are still on exhibition today at, in South Kensington. And then finally, in 1883, um, the death after the death of Woodcroft, uh, the Patent Museum becomes joined into a single institution with the South Kensington Museum. Um, literally, they took down a wall in the building so that people could go between them, but did little else to try to integrate the two museums together. Um, a little bit later, um, as we see, the Science Museum gradually moves towards being its own independent institution. Throughout um, all of the late 19th century, the museum was under the director of essentially an art historian or um, design person. There was never a scientist or engineer in charge. Um, it didn't, at least until um, 1893, when they got two separate directors. Um, we talked about previously, we heard about how here in Oxford museums gradually separated out. Well, here um, for about 15, 16 years, you have an institution with two heads, um, both of whom um, had their own curatorial staff and who um, both were fighting for the same space. Um, by this point, um, the VNA, what comes known as the VNA in 1909, was situated basically where it's currently today, and the science collections had been stuck in this very tiny run of buildings on the other side, which had been built um, for the International Exhibition of 1864. There's, the, there's actually the Horticultural Society's um, refreshment rooms. Um, just so you know how long they stayed, those buildings existed till the Second World War, and um, maintained collections until 1939 um, and were falling down by 1909 when, um, for those who recognize the, the Ashton Webb building at the VNA was opened and um, the name Victoria and Albert Museum was confined, confined solely to the art um, and design collections and the Science Museum as an institution was made independent. Um, well, so what is this new in institution supposed to do? Well, um, the Bell Report, which was convened in 1909 and produced reports in 1911 and 1912, um, stated the purpose and aims of the museum. It gave the new independent institution two main purposes, education and preservation meaning that they've got to educate people about cutting-edge science and preserve historical science. And it gave a variety of audiences that they're supposed to do both of those things for, including um, school children, the general public, um, professional engineers and um, interested individuals, and then specialist students. Um, so in one way, the museum now has about eight or nine different servants. Um, and it is supposed to serve this huge, very complicated audience in a very tiny building. So, the Bell Report tries to solve that problem by um, telling in um, 1912 the government that the, build, the Science Museum needs to have this building built um, and even figures out the exact space requirements for the next 10 years. Um, space has always been a problem for the science collections, and even after this, um, continued to be. Um, does anyone know how big 
today's science museum buildings are? Has anyone been there? Can you walk through the exhibition road to Queensgate in, in the current buildings today? Well, you actually can't, and that's because this plan from 1912 was never completed. Um, to even get close to this plan, it took the museum 88 years. So um, this plan was only supposed to survive, or only supposed to provide the museum, serve them for about 10 to 20 years of, of constant expansion. And for various reasons, um, the museum never moved beyond, um, well, for most of um, this century, never moved beyond um, the building that we see here being opened by the king in 1928. Um, but... Um, the museum was one of the most popular museums in Europe. Um, by 1932, it had passed the British Museum in annual attendance, and in 1933, it was the second most popular museum in the world. Does anyone want to guess what the um, first most popular museum in the world is? No, it passed the British Museum the year before. The British Museum is lagging behind. They're old news by this point. Nope. Move. Um, which, um, for many years, um, up until the outbreak of the Second World War, was the most popular um, museum in the world, averaging somewhere about 1.3, 1.4 million people. Everyone knows how big that building is. Well, the Science Museum was averaging between 1.2 and 1.3 million during the same period in a, in a building that was um, a sixth or less of the size. Um, it it out-competed um, the British Museum for um, uh, individuals, for visitors, um, throughout most of the 1930s. And actually, during this period, the Science Museum is the one museum that maintains steady attendance when almost all other um, national collections are seeing decreased in attendance year on year. Um, so they must have been doing something right. But what is the question? Well, there's been several arguments, and my favorite argument and my, my, my pet argument for, for this period is that the Science Museum is first not a museum of the upper class. It is a museum of the middle and lower classes. Um, the reason I say that is the subject material appear, appeals more to engineers, technicians, and their families, and it was considered by many of the upper classes as a playground for their children. And for um, 70 years before this, it was a popular museum for the well-to-do in London to pack their children off in a cab to, to spend a rainy day running around. Um, and during this period, that's what you find, is that this is a family museum where you have children and families coming in, especially on school holidays and things, which is a completely different story than you see at places like the British Museum and a crossroad at the V&A. Um, Henry Lyons is the most important director of this period. Um, he works throughout the, the 1930s. And he shifts the bell report slightly. He says the most important visitors are your ordinary non-specialist person. So your everyday person who walks in off the street. And perhaps most importantly and most long-lastingly, he creates the children's gallery, um, which most everyone that I mentioned the sciences in fondly remembers running around and pulling levers and um, 
and pushing buttons and making things fly around. And the question from, the, from basically the time it opened is, how educational is this gallery? How much are children learning about looking at dioramas? Oh, I did put the diorama with a button on it. Um, how much are children looking at dioramas of naked men walking through the snow or pulling on pulleys or pushing buttons to make doors whiz around or things? Or is this simply a playground for children to be dumped into while their parents look at more serious stuff around the museum? And this problem um, is continually addressed um, post-war. Um, but what happened during the war? Well, the Science Museum bookends the war with two um, aeronautical exhibitions that actually prove um, that the museum has an ability to um, use their collections to construct exhibitions of contemporary technology and their historical development. Um, neither of these museums are what, what would be a technical story, as most of the exhibitions are at the museum. These are both social stories. The first one, Aircraft in Peace and War, has the, has, is broken into four sections with the um, quite funny titled Historic Section, running from 1903 to 1914. Um, the Great War from 1914 to 1918, and then the majority of the exhibition taken up by civil and military aviation um, till the break or till the outbreak of the Second World War, and then a small section on the RAF. Um, this exhibition was designed to give people a taste of life at the front lines and to show them all the advances that science was making in protecting them um, and to w winning the war, and it, it brought about. Um, important things about early civil aviation and things. Um, and I always like this image of the man being weighed before he, he boards his flight um, back in the day when every pound counted. Um, but additionally, at the end of the war, um, the Durham Aeronautical Developments Exhibition um, is a large exhibition open to show the public what has happened during the war. Um, and the museum is in the rare situation. They're able to beat almost every other institution in the country in displaying materials that have come straight off the front line. Um, the reason they're able to do this is because they're reasonably undamaged by the war. Um, and while that's very beneficial to show how important they are to the, to the government and the, um, and, and the educational possibilities they have, it does hurt them in the long run. If we have time, I can tell you how that happens. Um, but throughout the period from the 1920s all the way through the 1960s, the Science Museum wants a planetarium. Um, I, I've listed all the dates so that you can see just how many attempts were made. Um, but why? Well, it was seen by the people supporting it at the Science Museum as an educational instrument that would both provide basic astronomy education to school children and students, but also would provide technical education to fighter pilots, commercial airline pilots, people like that. Um, unfortunately, both of these arguments fell through, and the Science Museum was never able to convince anyone that it was a useful place for a planetarium. My favorite quote through the whole argument is when a person from the Treasury refers to the planetarium as a science museum exhibition with a long name and of doubtful value. Um, they could never convince anyone to give them money for it. 
Um, later in, in the 1950s, um, an educator actually goes to the Science Museum as director. He is, uh, works in the Museum of the History of Science here in Oxford before going to the Science Museum and is, um, as you can see, a man of all trades. His um, organic chemistry textbook, which he wrote in the 1930s, early 1940s, was still in use in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, many of his other writings uh, in the history of science are, are popular today. Um, but he went to the science museum as a complete outsider with some completely new ideas. Um, and more than any one of the, the middle part of the century changed the way that the science museum approached education in the sense that he actually involved teachers. Um, they had always been, been told to reach out to school children, but before this point, no one had thought, well, what's the easiest way to reach out to school children? Well, let's talk to their teachers. So he held teacher conferences and communicated with teachers through the science museum bulletins. Then to reach out to other people, um, he started, a, or he increased the lecture service and started a new film service for the museum. These things all increased the museum's educational provision, but if you'll notice, all of them are around the fringes. No one is taking any steps to actually change the display of the museum um, to make it itself more educational. Um, and there are some problems with this. When him and his predecessors ever tried to, they were stopped by curators. Um, curators um, would go over their heads to stop changes being made and everything. But um, Sherwood Taylor started the process of changing that in 1952 with a new policy statement. Um, these pictures are from the Agriculture Gallery, which exists today in the museum. It was installed in 1951 and was one of the um, first movements towards a more educational presentation of, of science and technology. And then in 1955, the Advisory Council report actually replaced the Bell Report, and it, it actually um, codified the problem in the museum, is that exhibitions were not contextualized properly. Science requires context. Art, archaeology, many of the other things displayed in museums can be enjoyed for their beauty, their age, something else, but science is not self-explanatory. Um, and that without contextualization, education fails. So what's next for the museum? Well, during um, the 70s and 80s, the museum continued to develop as an educational institution, but was always hampered because until 1984, it was a, it was a department of the Board of Education, and so had to answer directly to civil servants. It couldn't go out, about and do things how any other museum would do, free from... Um, the interference or the, the major interference of government. And so today, what is the Science Museum trying to do? Um, well, this is the museum's new plan for rearranging the galleries and changing things to make it a, a better, more educational institution for the 21st century. But again, like many of the other changes, um, they're only fiddling with the things along the edges and not actually addressing the display of the vast majority of the galleries, some of which have not changed um, for, well, the label in the previous slide hadn't changed for nearly 80 years. <laughs> so um, that's a quick run-through of the Science Museum's history. If you have any questions, um, feel free. This is about the quickest I've done my entire <laughs> dissertation. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions about anything, feel free.
Thank you. Thank you.